I wonder if you would pray with me this morning. Father, this morning, we come to you through your son, Jesus. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy that follow us all the days of our lives. We thank you that you have made for yourself one family, that by the mysteries of your grace, we've been invited not just to participate, but to truly belong. We pray in these next few moments that your Holy Spirit would be present to us in this room in meaningful ways, helping me say what needs to be said, but helping all of us to hear what needs to be heard. And to that end and for the sake of your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, a phone, tablet, a laptop, your own personal reader, have them turn to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. You'll notice that there was a gospel reading this morning, and one of the things that we're going to be doing is we'll be hearing a reading from the gospel every Sunday. Um, We may not necessarily preach out of that text explicitly, but this is something that we think is an important shift for us as a community because the gospel is the prism through which all texts are to be understood. And uh, this came out of conversations that we had uh, in a class in New York City the week before last. Uh, It was a great class that uh, Bishop Ed put together with Dr. Chris Green and Bishops Mike and Beth Owen. And I believe there were six of us. Does that sound right? From Tulsa? Six of us. that were there for the class, three of whom got zapped. They became deacons in holy orders. And so fortunately, at some point in the near future, I won't be the only person wearing a dog collar in church. (sighs) Just brace yourselves, brace yourselves. But at any point, uh, we had a wonderful time together and we celebrate with pastors Brent and Janice and with Paul Pano. Uh, who were ordained into holy orders uh, through Bishop Ed and Bishops Mike and Beth in New York City last week. And so we're a very blessed community uh, to have people who have this sense of calling and focus. Um, but at any rate, we will be reading, hearing from the gospel text weekly. But this morning I'm going to preach to uh, the community out of Exodus 33. And so starting at verse 12, this is our Old Testament reading, uh, Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. 
And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, see, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And this is the word of the Lord. There's a verse in Proverbs chapter 30. It's the 15th verse. And I particularly like the King James rendering of this. You may have it underlined in your Bible. It may be part of your precious promises that you read regularly. It says, the horse leech hath two daughters crying, give, give. No, no, okay. (laughs) This text in the Old Testament in Exodus is very famous. There is a hymn that many of us either old-timers or old souls, will remember, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock and covers me there with his hand. I got about four amens from the front row. It's all right. It's all good. It's a well-known passage of Scripture. And in my tradition, we would have definitely leaned into what I'm going to lean into this morning. And it is the cry of Moses unto God, show me your glory. I'm going to put a title on this message that I wrestled with. I wrestled with this message all week. I changed my message in the middle of the week because I wanted to preach out of the second or the optional reading of the Old Testament. It's found in Isaiah, the 45th chapter, and it's a very beautiful, uh, elaborate text with a lot of theological things to unpack about Cyrus, a Persian king who is the Lord's anointed. It's pretty, it's, it's amazing. And I was, honestly, I'll be a little bit transparent and say, I was sitting in a vestry board meeting this week, and the Lord said, no, you're preaching the Exodus text. I said, but God, I want to be different than Nate. Nate preached out of Exodus last week. <laughs> and the Lord pressed on me a little bit. He said, no, preach the Exodus text. I said, well, Lord, that's too predictable because I'm the Pentecostal guy. I can't preach, show me your glory. And then he brought me back to one of my favorite sermons from one of my mentors. And I'm going to steal. I'm going to patently steal the title of this sermon from him. And I wrestled with this because it's bad grammar. And I feel like sanctuary is a little bit too elegant for bad grammar. So my apologies in advance. But I do think the bad grammar does hit on a point. The title of the sermon this morning is, There's Got to Be More. There's got to be more. And there's something about the human experience where we will get to moments where good grammar doesn't really suffice. We'll get to moments where we don't have time to think long enough how we should properly phrase a thing. It's almost like a visceral, intuitive response to life where you say, there's got to be more than this. I mean, our our deacon Paul even said, do you want it to say got to be or gotta be? I said, don't push it, okay? Don't push it. We're not going to, whoa, we're in jinx. (laughs) Let's not push it. 
But I want to go back to the horse leech. Because I think the horse leech taps into something that we can readily discern. And it's this idea that we need to have our desires sanctified. We need to have the longings of our hearts purified and transformed. You see, this sermon is not going to be a sermon about crassly getting things from God. This sermon is an invitation to all of us, starting with me, to spiritually discern and appreciate the differences between something like contentment and complacency. One is wonderful, the other one is not. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Complacency has hints of the lukewarmness that makes God nauseous. Sort of like the difference between longing and restlessness. Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But James in his epistle says, do not be a double-minded man who's unstable in all of his ways. And there's this sort of restlessness that is the carnal counterpart to longing. And I think when we read this story, when we're encountering Moses here on the mountain with God, we're not encountering restlessness. We are observing divine discontent, holy hunger. And I think we can lean into the story of Moses this morning so that we can be formed in our own desires, so that we can have mature longing within each one of us. And maybe some of us this morning have gone from that place of contentment into a place of complacency. We've gone from a place of of feeling the joy and the settled goodness of God to now we haven't moved for a long time. And that's not where God wants us to be. You see, in Moses we find an encounter that has a sense that Yahweh is inexhaustible and unsearchable. This Jehovah God is worth pressing into, leaning into, pulling on, and asking for more. You have to consider the fact that Moses has stood before Pharaoh, the greatest power in the world, and he's watched the Nile River turn to blood. He's watched flocks destroyed. He's seen the incredible supernatural power in the most fear-inducing sense, power of God, oftentimes, right, at the very word of Moses. None of us in this room have seen anything like Moses has seen. Moses has stood with his feet getting wet on the shore of the Red Sea, choking on the dust from Pharaoh's chariots, beating behind him and watch the sea part walk through on dry land, only to turn back around and watch the army destroyed as the sea closes up. None of us have seen this. Moses has seen water out of a rock and manna from heaven. None of us have seen these things. And yet, having encountered God on Sinai, receiving the covenant, the Ten Commandments, these tablets of stone that are engraved by the very finger of God, Moses feels impelled to say, show me your ways 
and show me your glory. I'm convicted by that this morning. Because I have not seen a single percentage point of what Moses has seen, yet I don't have the same longing. I didn't put it in my notes because I've over C.S. Lewis this crowd as it is. But I can't help but the spirit done brought it up inside of me right now. And what does he say? C.S. Lewis says this. He says, he says, it's not that our desires are too strong. It's that our desires are too weak. And we are far too easily pleased. It's not that our desires are too strong. It's that our desires are too weak. And we are far too easily pleased. This Moses, who would appear on the Mount of Transfiguration, curiously enough, with Elijah, who also had a very similar encounter with God on a mountain, in the cave, in the cleft. This Moses says, there's got to be more. I would think a man who has held the Ten Commandments in stone in his hands would not need to say, show me your ways. A man who has seen the Red Sea opened up and dry land before him would not need to say, show me your glory. Why is it that my prayers don't have this longing? Why is it that I don't have this holy stone in my shoe bothering me as I walk from week to week? You see, I think Moses for us can be held up as a contrast to the settled, sort of superficial, popular Christianity that is too common in our culture. You see, we live in a culture that is obsessed with clarity and pragmatism. And these two kissing cousins have run mystery out of town. Run it straight out of town. And we've got God figured out in three easy steps. And somehow we've convinced ourselves that there is this clear plan that God has for our lives. And if we just maybe take a day to fast, he'll show it to us. Does that resonate with the life of Moses? Does that resonate with the story of the apostles? I don't think it does. But my goodness, we could go from church to church, church to church, from coast to coast. And the ones that would be most filled would be filled with sermons that hit those targets, that check those boxes. I'm afraid we've been left with little more than a formulaic understanding of God. And that understanding is valuable only to the extent that it makes our lives better. And by better, we mean it helps us in our pursuit of happiness. I'm guessing that many of us are here this morning in sanctuary, in this eclectic boutique church on the south side of Tulsa. Because there's something about checking those boxes that instinctively bothers us. There's something about the reductionism and the childishness and the overly simplified approach to God that just doesn't seem to sit right with us, and that's why we're sitting here. Something inside of us at some time, one way or another, whether you were swinging from chandeliers with me and Danielle, or you were saying the liturgy, 
with some of our other blessed saints in the house. At some point, we said there's got to be more. There's got to be more. There's got to be more stability. There's got to be more strength. There's got to be more mystery. There's got to be more life. There's got to be more wind of the Spirit that we can't tell where it's going. There's got to be more of these things. That's why we're sitting here this morning. I don't want 75 minutes. Get me in and get me out. I don't want to be affirmed in my life as it is. I want to be challenged. I want to be renewed in my mind so I can be transformed in my person. Convergence as a movement has become that place for my soul. Restless, wandering, looking. Where do I land? But here's what concerns me this morning is that every good experience of God comes with it. uh, There comes with that a temptation to set up camp. And like Peter said on the Mount of Transfiguration, let's build some temples here. You see, I almost think the better our understanding of God is in this moment, the more prone we are to settle in and grow complacent, to get comfortable in the worst sorts of ways. And this is true of congregations, and this is true of individuals. And denominations, thank you. It's true. The better it gets, the more profound it is, the more life-changing it is, the more prone we are to stay here. And I think this morning, I've just come before you to say, I don't want to get settled and I don't want to define myself by what I'm not. Well, I'm not superficial. Or I'm not emotional. Or I'm not, you know, pop. I don't want to define myself, my faith, my life by what I'm not. And at the same time, I don't want to define my future by my past. I don't want to do this for me as a person individually, and I don't want us to do that as a community. Well, this is the way it's always been, or we've never done it that way before. These are the statements of people and organizations and communities that never experience the life and the goodness and the fresh outpouring of what God would have. Walter Brueggemann, one of our great Old Testament scholars, says something that has forever shaped my life. And since I read this, I have gone back to this so many times. I've lost count. Listen to what Brueggemann says. Here we are at the deepest theological question of biblical faith. Is the God of faith contained within and informed by what the world knows to be possible? Or is it within the capacity of God to create a newness that defies the categories of possible that are commonly and reasonably accepted in the world? In other words... Am I letting my experience in the past determine what is possible in the future? Or am I letting the unsearchable, unending, infinite nature of who God is determine what is possible in the future? And that may conflict with what culture says is possible. And I ask you this as an individual, and I ask all of this as a community. What is possible? Is it possible there there could be more for us? 
than what we've experienced. That there could be more truth, more encounter, more revelation, more transformation. Is it possible? And if it's possible, why would we settle for what we have as good as it is? You see, I think the need that is lying in Moses' request needs to affect us. We need to see Moses' divine discontent. We need to see his holy unsettledness. And we need to hear it as a challenge this morning. Because Moses doesn't just ask for one thing. He asks for two things. He says, show me your ways or let me know your ways. And that word in the Hebrew for ways is derek. It talks about a, a, a path, a journey. It talks about a highway. And it's interesting to me that Moses says this to God, who's been revealed to him for however long now, in a pillar of fire and in a cloud. And what are the pillar of fire and cloud always doing? They're moving. They're moving. And his first request leans into this and says, I want to know your ways. I want to know where you're going. And of course, his second request, show me your glory, the kavod, the weight, the majesty, the heaviness, the splendor, the very essence of who God is. He wanted to know that. He wanted to see that. He basically says in the Hebrew, God, show me your face. There's a good trivia question in Exodus 33 because back in somewhere verse 10 or 11, it says that Moses at the tent of meeting would encounter this pillar and it says he would talk to God face to face as a friend speaks with a friend. And then the text we heard this morning says you can't see my face. And this is very interesting. The way, one of the ways that we can reconcile this anyway is to say, If we read the first claim in context, what we're seeing is the children of Israel are standing at their tents and they're watching Moses engage God at the tent of meeting. And to them, it looks like he's talking to the face of God. But by the end of the chapter, we realize that wasn't it at all. This is powerful to me. There are things that appear to be one way, but the reality is totally different. It looks like Moses has this face-to-face encounter with God, but Moses and God both know that's not true. And Moses comes back to God, and just let me paraphrase, give me a little bit of room here. Moses says, I know I look like the guy who's got a face-to-face relationship with you, but you and I both know that's not the case. Would you please show me your face? And in this request, we see that Moses has a profound sense of possibility. Even though I've never seen your face, I've been close enough to think it might be possible that God might do something he hasn't done yet. We see here a sense of boldness. He risks getting pushed back from God. He risks offending God. He risks asking in error. How many of our prayers never get off the ground because we're afraid we're going to say the wrong thing? God's big enough. 
to handle all of our foolish requests. And sometimes I think he's just like, I wish you'd just ask me for something stupid once in a while. I just wish you would. And the thing that I love about Moses here is that there's a sense of appropriateness. And that is, you've called me when I was minding my own business, watching Jethro's sheep. You called me. You assigned me. You took this staff that's still in my hand and you made it a magic wand. You did all this stuff. It's not wrong or out of line for me to say, show me your glory. My question is, are we asking things of God that would jeopardize our futures? Moses asked for something that we find out later would kill him. Do we have that sort of desire so burning in our belly that we go to God and say, God's like, whoa, if I answered that, you'd die. Moses was asking for an encounter with God that would kill him. It says in verse 20. Can't help but wonder if the first word that describes me or my church is safe. Is that really being faithful to who Jesus is? Now, I'm not advocating recklessness. I'm not suggesting we should endure undue hardship. I'm simply advocating for a life of adventure, a life of challenge that is the inevitable fruit of listening to the Holy Spirit in vulnerability. Letting the Spirit, as the popular song so often says, take me to places, right, where my trust is without borders. We need to be people whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, on this movement into God, into the life of God that isn't safe, that isn't predictable, that isn't a rehashing of what we've experienced in the past. You see, Christians are exiles. Christians are Pilgrims, Christians are strangers in this world, citizens of heaven first. The words walking and running, they describe life in Christ. The very first communities of faith were not called churches. They weren't even called Christians. They were called the way. Everything about this coming kingdom is about movement. It's about progress. It's about not staying where you are. After all, God never asked for a temple. The only thing he ever asked for was a tent. And too many of our lives, our churches, our denominations have become temples to our past when God is simply looking to place us in a tent so he can move us into his future. You see, our way, the Christian way, is not the path of least resistance. Our way is not the path of immediate returns. Our way is the path of weakness, but the sort of weakness that reveals perfect power. Our pathway is the way of asking and seeking and knocking. And the fact remains, we don't always get what we ask for. 
but that doesn't mean we shouldn't ask. Take that lesson from Moses. Show me your glory. Nope. Not going to do it. Ask anyway. What happens? God's response is, you will see my goodness and you will hear me say my own name. I know it's a cliche, but it fits here. God will not necessarily give us what we want, but he certainly will give us what we need. You see, this faithful cry that Moses utters is in response to what he's already encountered of God. We have to remember, any cry that says there's got to be more implies that there's already something in place. So I'm not talking here this morning about religious ambition. There's a little bit of like cultural capitalism that creeps into the church where we have this am, the, the ambitious folks that think, well, if I, read my, if I read the book of Ezekiel this afternoon, you know, if I pray on my knees for an hour and there's glass under my legs, somehow God will do something, you know? Now, those are exaggerated examples, but we all know that there are ways in which we think we can manipulate God into getting us to the next level. Not talking about that. I'm saying an honest response to what God has already done. Moses had already been trembling in front of a burning bush after he was minding his own business. Moses had already experienced the awesome Passover lamb. And the blood's power to protect. Moses had already tasted manna from heaven. And that's why I believe Moses now had the audacity to ask God for more. The call for more that is not contextualized by the past goodness of God is inappropriate. Let me say that again. The call for more that is not contextualized in the past goodness of God. In other words, I've tasted the manna. I've drank the water out of the rock. I can smell the salt air of the Red Sea. And you know what? There's got to be more. A God who can do this can do much more than this. Show me your ways. Show me your glory. That context validates, authenticates, appropriates this request. And I love this fact that God comes and he says, okay, I'm not going to show you glory, but you're going to see goodness and you're going to hear my voice. Can I say to you this morning that Jesus was not only everything that Moses had experienced of God up until this point, Jesus was the more that Moses was longing for when he said, show me your glory. Isn't it interesting that John the Revelator declared in 1 John, the beginning of the first chapter, what does he say in that first verse? I'm here to declare what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and with what we have looked at and touched with our hands. The writer of Hebrews goes on in his opening, chapter 1, verse 3, and he describes Jesus as, quote, the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. When you say, show me your glory, Moses, you're asking for Jesus. When you ate the manna, you were eating Jesus. When you drank water from the rock, you were drinking Jesus. 
And this is why the Apostle Paul describes Christ in the second chapter of Colossians as God's mystery. In whom, look at this next word, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is not a meal ticket to heaven. He is the repository of all of the wisdom and knowledge of the universe. And it's hidden in him. Proverbs 25 says it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings and queens to search it out. There's got to be more. Our collect for this week, let's jump back into the book of Common Prayer. What do we say? In Christ, you have revealed your glory. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for that coincidence. (sighs) Can I leave you with this thought from Abraham Heschel? Abraham Heschel, for those of you who don't know him, may be one of the most important uh, Jewish theologians of the 20th century. He's one of those rare people who's a hero of conservatives and liberals alike, offensive to conservative and liberals alike, my kind of guy. His most famous work is called God in Search of Man. And this morning I'm preaching a sermon about man in search of God. But I think Rabbi Heschel gives me room here. Listen to what he says. Not all of the people of the Bible are satisfied with awareness of God's power and presence. There are those, and he uses the Psalms here, there are those that seek him, that seek thy face, O God of Jacob. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may abide in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Listen to what he says. God is waiting for man to seek him. I have to say this again. God is waiting for man to seek him. And then listen to this quote that he brings to us from Isaiah 65. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I unto a nation that did not call upon my name. Can I repeat Rabbi Heschel again? God is waiting for man to seek him. And in our seeking, we do not come to God like the horse leech. We don't come to God crying out like religious consumers who are restlessly looking to consume superficial experiences or even profound theology. How blessed are we in this house to have people like Dr. Green and Brother Nate and Paul and all these people and Bishop Ed who can stand here in this very place and they can share incredible profound theology. May we never treat theology the way the church down the street might be treating action points. And I'm not criticizing the church down the street. Please hear me. Thankfully, God's grace is bigger than all of our own faulty presumptions. Here and everywhere. And everybody said? 
What I am saying is, what we have is so beautiful here in this house. May we never be elitist. We have Dr. Green. Yes, we do. Only brag in-house about that. Because, listen, whether you're consuming practical tips and pointers to make you a better parent or a better employer, or you're coming here to hear Dr. Green unpack profound theology at the highest levels, probably in any church in America, either way, if you're consuming it and it's simply looking to reinforce what you already think is good of you, how much are we like the horse leech? But if we come to God like a deer panting for a water brook, we come to God impoverished by our hunger and our thirst, if we come to God every Sunday crying out, even so come Lord Jesus, the longing that was in the early church for the return of the Lord has been replaced by a cheap escapism. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that your Holy Spirit, through the foolishness of this preaching, would bother us, not just today, but I'm asking Holy Spirit to bother us sometimes during this week, driving in our cars, sitting in our living rooms, with this thought, there's got to be more. God, I ask you to have mercy on us for our complacency, for our false sense of settling. And I'm asking that you'd awaken something in each one of our hearts and minds, not just as individuals, but as a community of faith, awaken something in us of a pioneering spirit to follow your spirit into places we never thought possible. We ask this through Christ our Lord.